Welcome to the AK-47 Podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey, and today I'm coming to you with a special bonus episode because I have the pleasure of inviting my daughter Hello. back to the show. She hasn't actually... I'm back. She's back. You're back. Yes. She hasn't actually been on the episode... On the show and from college. And from college. She hasn't been on the show in a while. And so we thought it would be fun to do a a collaborative episode, a, collab- a discussion, a discussion, have a discussion, a, uh, a Socratic episode, if a you will. Socratic episode. Yes, that's a good idea. A Socratic <laughs> episode. So the and the reason why I decided to invite my very smart and lovely daughter onto the podcast once again, well, thank you, is because she has been so kind recently to have read through the manuscript of a book that I am working on, which includes an extensive biographical chapter on Alexander Kollontai. Indeed. And also, uh, simultaneously, I am co-authoring a biographical chapter on Alexander Kollontai, as I think I might have mentioned in the last episode, with a Russian historian who's actually based in Russia and working in the archives with Alexander Kollontai's personal papers. And one of the things that has come out of all of these really fascinating investigations, in addition to you know all of the biographies and articles that I have read about Alexander Kollontai, is her relationship with Zoya, Zoya Shadorskaya. Shadorskaya. Yes. Shadorskaya. Yes. Zoya Shadorskaya was a Bulgarian whom Alexander Kollontai met when she As was a child. when she was six years old. Yes, that's right. Her father, General Demontovich, was sent to Bulgaria in 1878. Because he was drafting a new constitution for yeah. the country. Yeah, he apparently. literally was Which writing. Which I learned while reading your book. Yes. Alexander Kolontai's dad drafted the first constitution for independent Bulgaria once Bulgaria became independent of the Ottoman Empire. Which is kind of cool if you think about it. Like all of the weird ways in which our lives are entangled. Yeah. So while she was living in Bulgaria with her dad... She met this girl. She met this girl, Zoya. Zoya Shadorskaya. Shadorskaya. And Zoya and Alexandra... They became fast friends. Very fast friends. Long-term friends, actually. Big-time long-term friends, right? So... Would you care to elaborate on their their history together? Yeah, I think it's really fascinating how important Zoya's relationship with Kolontai was for Kolontai. So... They were always in contact once Kolontai left Bulgaria. And when Kolontai had her child, she was quite young, and Zoya came from Bulgaria and actually lived with Alexandra and her first husband, guy who was named Vladimir Kolontai, which mm-hmm. is why she's called Kolontai, not Dumontovich, which is her father's name. She kept her first husband's mm-hmm. name for her whole life. And, and then, interestingly, when Kolontai leaves her first husband... And goes to off to Switzerland to study economics and to become a you know socialist revolutionary. Essentially, she develops this sort of lifelong friendship with mm-hmm. Zoya, and Zoya lives with Kolontai for most of her life, uh, on and off for most of her life. Yeah, they uh, Zo- Zoya follows Alexandra into mm-hmm. exile. She, after the revolution, she lives with Alexander Kolontai mm-hmm. and her child, Misha, and they sort of have a little house together, mm-hmm. Zoya and Alexandra and Misha. And they raise the child together. They raise the child together very briefly. Yeah. And, you know, they, when 
Alexander Kollontai eventually goes off and lives in Sweden as a diplomat, Zoya is a, a very frequent visitor. Mm-hmm. And at some point in her diaries and in her conversation with Isabel de Valencia, who wrote the first English language biography of Kollontai uh-huh. in 1947, Kollontai is quoted as saying, after her son, Zoya Shadorskia is the most dear person in her life. And she actually goes on and and says that friendship is so much more, I'm, I'm paraphrasing this quote, but it's so much more of a social emotion than romantic love. Mm-hmm. Because romantic love is very selfish, but friendship allows you to have relationships with lots of different people. And she felt that her relationship with Zoya was really profound and, espe- and very special. Mm-hmm. And in fact... Zoya and Alexandra Kolontai remain very, very close until Zoya's death Death. in 1939. Yeah. And so then what was your impression when you read about this? So I personally, first of all, as your daughter, I have heard so many things about Kolontai all throughout the at least the last three years of my life. Um, And I have had been very exposed to her, her teachings, her writings, her teachings, her write like her writings, her theories, um, her life. But I, until very recently, until I read this biography that you wrote, um, I had never heard of Zoya Shadowska, and I was very surprised because, to me, as a young person, um, I I read this very much as a queer love story. I I read this very much as a what the Victorians called a passionate friendship between two women. The fact that they lived together for such a long time um, that Alexandra enlisted Zoya's help in raising her son. The fact that she said that she is the, the most dear, one of the most dear things in the world to her. And that um, Zoya never married. Zoya never married. She was that a self-supporting Zoya's, journalist. That Zoya's, both of them had, oh, obviously Kolontai had her own um, affairs. Um for several several times, and it, did you say that there were that there was something about Zoya having an affair with right? With so somebody right, Shlapnikov. Shlapnikov. So Shlapnikov, uh, one of one of Alexander Kolontai's early relationships in Paris, it started in Paris, was with with a guy called Shlapnikov, and much later, I mean, they remained friends throughout their life, but much right. later, Shlapnikov and Shadorskia mm-hmm. had a had a relationship. Yeah. But I mean, to be fair, you didn't know about Shlapnikov or Dubenko either, right? You didn't know much about no. her love life. No, I right. did not. But I had heard that she had had a love life. Right, right. Many times. Of course, because she um, wrote literally the autobiography of, of a sexually emancipated communist woman. And, and the thing is, that, that sounds to me, I mean, sexual emancipation does not come with only men. Right. You know, of course, sexual... I mean, obviously, you know, you can be sexually emancipated and still, you know, have a consistent mono-sexual attraction to one gender over another, um, or exclusive of the other. Mm -hmm. But to me, this sounded very queer, and I got very excited by the prospect, because I think there are so few women who are, you know, loving and living with women. In there are so few lesbians or just bisexual women especially. There's a lot of stories, if you go back far enough, there's a lot of material about male homosexual attraction and relationships in especially ancient Greece and ancient Rome, but there's very little about women. And so this was very exciting to me. And then we got into a discussion about it, about whether or not right. it is. So because we don't have, we have evidence that they lived together and that they were really close gal pals. Sure, certainly um, they were very and close. And that they were very close and they had a very passionate, they had a very, maybe not passionate, 
But intimate they had friendship. a very intimate friendship for a very long period of time. Since for their, they were, whole, for for their, their whole, whole lives. lives. For their whole lives. Since they were six years old. Yeah. Um, and, until Zoya's death. Yeah. And, to, yeah. So so we ended up getting into a discussion. And I think right. we're rehashing that discussion now. Yeah. It's just an interesting question of, of whether or not. And so you made a really interesting argument about uh-huh. how it's valuable to go back in queer history. And the thing, so the thing that I, because, okay, the, the way that I remember this argument that we had, not mm-hmm. argument necessarily, but conversation. Conversation, yeah. Um, the way that I remember this conversation is that you said that we don't have any evidence that there was anything more than a passionate or intimate friendship between Zoya and Alexandra. I mean, it's certainly the written documents. The written documents don't say anything. And yeah. I and I was thinking, well, historical, you know, biographies of any any character, any person in history we only have what's written, and what's written is always going to be biased in some way. If it's, well, it's written, filtered, it's yeah. Fil- maybe not biased, filtered, but filtered through the lens, through the of, lens the of the historical epoch. That, the, yeah. yeah, filtered through the way that other people, the people who wrote down details about this person, perceived them. Filtered through the way that whoever wrote their, if it, if they even wrote their own material, their own primary sources, which Colin which Ty did. did filtered through how she wanted to be remembered because we know that she preserved every single document that she ever had yes. very, very carefully and meticulously, which means that she was preserving it for the future consumption yeah. of somebody, right? which means that she might not have revealed everything about herself. Right. That she would. And right. so the thing is that we, we have such little information. We, the, the, the sources that we have are so unreliable in terms of reality that uh, to me, it's it seems very worth it to come in and say, or to, to look at this situation and say, it's more likely than not that there was something a little bit gay going on here with Zoya and Alexandra, and that there was something queer, and that they had more than just a passionate friendship. They had more than an intimate, like, you know, asexual, aromantic platonic, com- purely platonic friendship, given that they raised a child together and given that they lived together for such a long period of time and that they were such close friends for their entire lives. And then the question, because we can't prove that in any way, shape, or form because of the evidence that we have, the question then arises, not just with her, with Kolontai as a figure or even Zoya as a figure, but like all figures, mm-hmm. is it worth it to try to interpret queer subtext into historical contexts Mm -hmm. and well what's your inclination i mean i i you know i think i'm a little bit more of a purist here on Mm -hmm. this on this thing because i look at the dot i want to look at the documents i want to look at the writings i want to look at the diary you know i want to go to the sources Mm -hmm. but that is an interpretive act yeah right and and as we and the other thing is Sorry, not to interrupt you. No, it's okay. Um, the other thing is that the problem is that, especially in like the Victorian context, especially yeah. in the historical context that we're working in, just working with the documents and being a purist about what you have is going to have to necessarily erase any queer subtext yeah. that, that exists because they would have to hide that kind of thing. Right. They, they Although, w- but would Kolontai have hidden it? This is the question, right? She had this idea of this sort of capacious, comradely love. And she was not at all embarrassed by the mm-hmm. fact that she had like a series of, 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 of male lovers, mm-hmm. right? And she certainly had friends and colleagues at the time, men mostly, who were gay, right? Right. So, so, 
So if it were true, I mean, I just don't. It's That's, interesting it's question. a question. It's, it's an interesting a question. question. I mean, I would. I love the idea, and I mean, and this comes up. This is not a hundred percent related to Kolontai, but Kolontai had these two contemporaries: a woman named Nadezhda Krupskaya and another mm-hmm. woman named Inessa Armand, um, who were both kind of in a potential weird, weird sort of triangle with Vladimir Lenin, a genuine triangle in which there was very clearly a relationship between, between the two women. Between the two women, a very close relationship. To the extent where in her memoirs of Lenin, his wife, Nadezhda Krupskaya, describes Nessa Armand with much more warm and loving language than she does to her own husband. Exactly. I mean, Nessa is definitely the star of that relationship. (laughs) Yeah. So, and, and to just like throw an even bigger plot twist in, when Alexandra Kolontai wrote Great Love, one of her novels, uh-huh. it was based on, people presume, people conjecture. conjecture, the love triangle between Inessa Lennon and Krupskaya. Krupskaya. Yes. So, 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 so the thing is, is I think if she was, and so, and I think there's also a difference between the queerness of the relationship and then the idea of just sort of queer families, right? Right. That why do we have to think in terms there of... There was any romantic... Right. Maybe they just made they just made a house together. They yeah. made a life together because they were really well suited to each other. They were really great friends. And they had these external relationships yeah. with like men whenever they were around. But when when they needed somebody to rely on, when they needed to somebody, somebody to come home and take care of, you know, whatever, the basic stuff of life and, and taking care of a child, they relied on each other. And that relationship yeah. was more important to them. Uh-huh. Than any kind of romantic entanglement. And I think that that's consistent with Kolontai's own exactly. philosophy about, you know, externally, about her her idea of comradely love, including, you know, separate people for sexual satisfaction versus romantic satisfaction versus emotional satisfaction. Intellectual versus satisfaction. Elect- intellectual yeah. satisfaction. And that makes sense. But on the other hand, I think that that, and this is where the historical grand narrative, the historiography comes in right where i think that if we because his history at least to me is always an exercise of what can we learn from the past and how do we apply that to the present and how do we apply that to how we view the world today it seems to be reinforcing a sense of by by taking a queer family and saying that women can be only attract that these women were only attracted to men sexually but they were emotionally very available to each other and that they were capable of raising a child together that it, that does perpetuate this idea that women aren't capable of romantically or sexually loving other women. Yeah, that's a and problem. And that they don't do that. And when women are close like that, it's not a sexual or romantic love. It's purely a platonic and maternal love that they direct towards the children that they raise together and towards each other. And I think that that... The problem that I always get myself caught up in when I'm thinking about these things is whether is how do we reconcile historical realities or how do we maybe not historical realities because we don't know what those historical realities are. But how do we preserve the sanctity of just not knowing exactly what was going on there and the meta narrative that is created that people actually learn about this kind of thing saying that because we can apply a meta narrative that either is. Um, these, these two women were just really close friends and they raised a child together because that's 
you know, that is in line with Kolontai's philosophy and that is in line with like how they were. Or we can apply the meta narrative that is they were queer and they were in love with each other and they grew up to, and they and they raised a child together because that they loved each other and they lived together because they loved each other and they had flings on the side. But ultimately, their their relationship was the core of the, both of their lives, and that both of those meta narratives are equally possible based on the the information sure. that we have. And whichever one we choose to reinforce is going to be the one that people learn about. Because a lot of people don't go into the primary source documents and figure out exactly what was going on there and figure out that we really don't know. What most people learn is what is what they're told. Right. And so if what they're told is a queer narrative, then that means that a lot of young people get queer role models in history, which is, I think, a really productive thing. I think that's a good thing. And I think that that is also creates, and this is returning to what I was saying about the like that you know women can't love each other sexually that like that kind of narrative that if we create that narrative that means that young people will see that and be like oh my god queer women can love each other sexually they can have a really close intimate relationship and raise a child together and live together but they can also be in love romantically right right. and that's really great and that's something that is incredibly validating for young people to learn to uh, growing up or even people who are older who are questioning anything about their lives and about their personal attractions. And the question is whether we use history for our own personal, not personal, but our own contemporary, like, purposes, or just as a sanctified thing in the past that we only study based on, like, what's the actual evidence that we have. Right, and maybe this is where it's important possibly to make a distinction between history and like historical fiction. Maybe. Right? Maybe what what really needs to happen is somebody needs to write the Zoya Alexandra fanfic. But yeah. I mean it would be more powerful. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. If, then, it, yeah. if it was a history. But but if if it's all interpretive, which yeah. is which But the thing is that there are so many things in history that have been interpretive that we true. get sold as real history. I know. Like, you know, the the idea that that Sappho actually meant to write all of her pronouns as male. Like, actually she was talking about men the whole time. Right. No. And that she just yeah. had weird ancient Greek typos. Or like <laughs> all of these things about like Joan of Arc was actually secretly like you know, like I don't even know. All of these things that because history is so interpretive, historically, the history of history yes. is interpreting things in a way that is in line with our own status quo. Mm. And if we interpret history in a way that is actually pushing the status quo, maybe in the end, that's actually better if we have to interpret it either way. Wow. That is a great place to end this episode because we're almost at 20 minutes and I am absolutely fascinated by this argument. What do you guys think, listeners? Um, if you have thoughts on this question like, of history, comment, like, subscribe, comment, subscribe, or, or just, you know, do something really boring, like send an email and yeah, say, to the contact form. Just, yeah, to the contact you No, know, There's an alexander.colentai.podcast at gmail.com is the email to the Please podcast. Please email that. And yeah, let us let know, us know what, you think. what you think. This is something Do that... Do you think that Alexander Kollontai was a little bit fruity? Was she bi? Yeah. Was she bi? <laughs> I think there's evidence, definitely, for sure, there's evidence mm-hmm. where you can make that interpretation. Yes. Uh, I think that so far, most of her biographers and historians have not interpreted it that way. And the question is, you know, is that just an oversight? 
Or are they intentionally trying to wash out a kind of queer history because it undermines somehow, it might seriously undermine her credentials as a diplomat in Russia, where there's, you know, yeah. pretty serious homophobia today. Yeah. So it would be really, really bad. Especially, I mean, during the 20th century, when yeah. we're writing histories about her. I mean, we have to go back and we have to look at every single biography that we have and see if they were intentionally erasing any right. potential queerness. Right. As with every other historical figure. Yeah. Yeah. For most of history. Exactly. So... Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really wonderful kind of thought experiment. And, you know, and, and I always love the idea that Kolontai had this sort of rock-solid relationship mm -hmm. in her life, given how fleeting her relationships, generally speaking, with men were. Um, and that, I mean, she was very, very close with her son, obviously, but they spent a lot of time apart, because, especially during the period that she was in exile. And then... When she was a diplomat yeah. after the revolution, you know, he was still back in the Soviet Union. And so, but this idea that yeah. she had, you know, a real partner in yeah. life. Absolutely, 100%. But then is that, a, is that a product of, like, bourgeois monogamy, a monogamist ideology for me to say that even though it makes it better because it's, like, queer, because they were both women, but it's still, but it's still kind of bourgeois to say that they were really, truly life, love, life partners. Exactly. And and so then it's like, a, I, there's a certain hesitance where whether you go with the queer interpretation that might then reinforce exactly what Kolontai was fighting against. Exactly. Which might even be why she didn't write about it. It might be. It might be that she literally wanted to say, I have all of these wonderful, beautiful relationships in my life, and they're all different, and they all do different things for me. Or she might recognize that she doesn't have that because she grew up in in Tsarist bourgeois, Russia, in Tsarist yeah. Russia, and that she was truly bourgeois, and that she had this bourgeois monogamous relationship with Zoya, and that she wanted someday in the future to not have to deal with that. <sighs> Wouldn't it be nice to talk to her? Oh, I know. Let's take her out for a yeah. drink. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, while we take Alexandra Kolontai out for a drink and ask her about her... Her love life. Her love life. <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening. And as always, keep up the good fight.